Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And this week, we've got off to a pretty exciting start as Ecuadorians have voted in a historic referendum to halt the development of all new oil wells in the Yasuni National Park in the Amazon, one of the most biodiverse regions on the planet. And one lady celebrating pretty hard was Nat Kelly who's a huge flag flyer for the protection of indigenous wisdom and indigenous culture after being born in Peru but raised in Australia by her indigenous mother and grandmother. She believes strongly that indigenous people who take care of more than 80% of what's left of our biodiversity need to be given more of a voice and had plenty to say about how people should be treated at Burning Man which kicks off this weekend in the desert. Natalie is an activist and actress and uses her platform to shout about the things that she cares about and has spent a lot of time in Ibiza on the farms of the island working within the regenerative agriculture scene and she also sits on the board of the Netflix film Kiss the Ground. We spoke last year about many things but it felt important as so many are heading off to Black Rock City again to mention some of her feelings on the way things are in Mexico and the workers who are there aiding guests and creating the magic that so many head off annually to experience on the playa. Natalie, welcome to today's episode. Thank you, Joe. I'm in awe of you and and your talent. I'm such a fan (laughs) of your podcast and just witnessing you do this in person or via Zoom is just a a joy. (laughs) Thank you. I'm I'm learning so much from you. It's it's an honor to be here. So kind. (laughs) I'm just so grateful that you would... um, get out of bed so early and make time um, to be on with us. I know that the time difference is um, is quite catastrophic between uh, Ibiza and um, where are you actually? <laughs> where are you joining us from? I'm in Ojai, California, and this is actually midday for me because I like to get up around 5am. <laughs> wow, what happens at 5am? <laughs> Everything good happens before 7am, creatively, cognitively, uh, you get to see the sunrise. I like to meditate out on my porch and get those first rays hitting my my third eye and my pineal gland. I've already hung upside down for 15 minutes today, so I'm about to have lunch. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder why you were looking so fresh-faced and gorgeous, but that's kind of your natural setting, seemingly. But hanging upside down definitely helps, That's that's for sure. I'm a big fan myself as well. And let's start with what's going on in Brazil. I mean, the election of two indigenous women um, is going to provide a much needed voice for Brazil's long-suffering indigenous communities. How did you feel to see Sonia Gujajara, who was chosen as one of the Time magazine's 100 most influential people earlier this year, elected? Because that felt like a huge moment and a massive step forward for the future of the protection of the Amazon in the future. Sonia Gujajara, wow. Wow, what a force of nature. I have to say I shed some tears of joy when I saw that she had been elected. Um, I also have to admit that a part of me was really doubtful because I, although I was raised in Australia, um, I do have an understanding of, of the 
Latin American mindset and mentality that views indigenous people as less than, as obstructions to uh, modernity, um, as undeserving of all the land uh, that they are given. And it's the and also people who have nothing of value to offer modern society. Um, this is, I call it a virus that we have been infected with in Latin America and that colonization brought over this virus of the superiority of Western culture over indigenous cultures. And sadly, it's not just people of European descent who feel this way. Indigenous, a lot of indigenous people too are infected with this virus of self-loathing. And so um, I'm lucky in that I grew up in Australia with my mom and my grandma, and I grew up kind of insulated from that kind of thinking. And uh, But it was shocking to me when I went to Brazil for the first time when I was 16 to see the social hierarchies that exist there with the people of European descent on top, then black people and then indigenous people at the very bottom. And there was so much cognitive dissonance with the things that my mother had told me growing up about indigenous wisdom and, and uh, our amazing, um, our amazing feats like the construction of Machu Picchu in Peru. A lot of my mother's um, stories evolved around our indigenous heritage. We are Quechua. But later I came to learn that the indigenous people of the Amazon potentially created man's greatest artwork, which is the Amazon rainforest, which I think is man's greatest achievement. They bioengineered that as a food forest. It is an orchard made by humans. And I think a lot of people don't know that, especially in Brazil. And so I, a part of me was scared to be hopeful that Sonia would be elected because I know that there are still so many people there today who have been programmed into believing that, like, like I said, indigenous people are here to hold up progress and they don't deserve all that land. And we could all be so much richer if we could just move in there and mine. And what do we need so many trees for anyway? And it's, it's really heartwarming and feels to me like the turning of a tide to see Sonia elected in Sao Paulo, which is a place that I feel deeply connected to. I lived, I lived in Sao Paulo off and on for three or four years. And I, I feel like it shows that this modern metropolis, this state with one of the biggest cities in Latin America, if, if somewhere so physically removed from the Amazon understands the need to have indigenous people making decisions about the future of the country, about the future of their territories. That means that things are shifting, hopefully in the right direction. Now, I want to say that we had hoped that Lula would win outright. And I felt disappointment that he didn't, that the polls had led us to believe that he would win without going into a second round. And what we also discovered was that the polls were not truly reflective of Bolsonaro's support. So let's also acknowledge that, that he has a lot of support. And when you look at the maps of deforestation and poverty, those are the places that voted in Bolsonaro. So these are hope people with not a lot of hope, with not a lot of education, with not a lot of resources. And they bought into the lie that if, if reelected, 
he's going to legalize all this illegal mining and give them fight and give them um financial hope and security that way these are people without land which is a huge issue in brazil there's a movement called mst the movimento sem terra the people without land movement of people without land and for years now they've been raising this issue of land ownership and access to land and highlighting the deep divides and inequality in Brazil and why is it that so few people are land owners and and this is a legacy of their slave past and and legacy of colonialism and so many people who have who's who have ancestrally worked these lands for these land owners don't have any land to call their own and they're the ones going out and logging and and i actually had a lot of a lot more compassion for them after watching um the the Darren Aronofsky produced film the territory have you seen that yet joe it's so wonderful i really recommend finding a way to see it and for anybody watching because it shows that these people who are doing the deforestation who are moving in there to illegally cut down trees and try to mine it 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 gives them a story as well and their story is also one of their ancestors they didn't choose to go to brazil you know a lot of them are also the descendants of slaves because a lot of brazil is mixed um and they and they they found themselves like eight nine generations in in this country that has not given them any any sovereignty any access to a land, a piece of land that they can farm and call their own because there's so much in injustice and inequality with the way land is owned and distributed that their only hope to have a piece of land to to farm on to for their families is to deforest and they are so uneducated and well, that sounds that, that that sounds a bit uh, kind of, <laughs> condescending but they they have they don't have access to education to understand the scope of what their deforestation is doing because they think well little old me i'm just like cutting down this hectare this forest is so vast there's so many more hectares left they don't understand about the tipping point that there's hundreds of thousands of people like them chopping every day and what that impact is so i think this is also like a big wake up call to even the lula government that gets if 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 god willing we are able to vote bolsonaro out you know there needs to be huge discussions around access to land land distribution we have to give these people land somehow so that they stop trying to go into the amazon and that's going to mean that those who have too much land are going to need to willingly redistribute it um and that's that's this is this is really um opened my eyes because I thought it was just well we need to send the army in to protect the 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 rainforest to protect indigenous people they're outnumbered there they can't possibly be um asked to defend these territories that are so large in with their small numbers um but now I'm seeing that there also needs to be this quest this question of land redistribution and also education the fact that in their eyes the forest is more valuable cut down so that they can put cows on it shows a huge lack of appreciation for the 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 technology of agroforestry that indigenous people of the amazon employed to build the amazon they don't know that it's taken tens of thousands if not more years 
to build that Amazon rainforest the way it is now. They don't value it because they just think it's just some fluke of nature. And what are you going to do with all these trees? Uh, it's more valuable to cut them down and put some cows on them because that's the only way they know. And so to me, this speaks to the need for a massive nationwide education on the importance of agroforestry replacing traditional livestock agriculture as the main form of agriculture in the country. So, you know, it's a bit at odds with some things that the regenerative agricultural movement are saying with their um, love of cows. And I agree that cows are, are needed in certain areas like the United States, where we no longer have buffalo, which were our traditional ruminant animals. You know, as someone who grew up in Australia, what did you see going on there in terms of people's reaction to the indigenous community growing up? I don't think I saw, I don't remember seeing like a full Aboriginal person, Indigenous person of Australia. Sorry, I was raised in a generation where we still used Aboriginal, so I'm still trying to switch my vocabulary um, because a lot of them don't, uh, rightly so, they find that word offensive. Um, I grew up probably 15 minutes from downtown, from at the central business district of Sydney, and yet it was just worlds away from um from indigenous life and culture uh that's because you very rarely see indigenous people in the cities anymore um they've been kind of ghettoized outside like they can't afford to live in sydney <laughs> let's just be real sydney's one of the most expensive cities in the world it's also on very sacred gadigal land and I just want to honor the Gadigal people because they stewarded that land that I lived on and that I grew up on with so much love and tenderness. And uh, that's why all of Australia feels magical, but Sydney especially is on very sacred land. So uh, in the 1960s, um, Indigenous people of Sydney were given like a little area in the inner city that they could call their own. The suburb is called Redfern. And it became like this third, like, this this community that existed in sometimes third world conditions in terms of access to healthcare and education and quality of life, this bubble surrounded by wealthy first world kind of like, yeah, it was just this bubble, this third world bubble in a first world city. And I visited that community for the first time when I was 18. It was only 15, 20 minutes from my house, but I'd never been. I'd heard so many, so many things like it's so dangerous. You'd never go there. And actually I started volunteering there after I came back from Peru for the first time. And I really connected in person with my indigenous roots. I thought, why haven't I connected with the indigenous people of Australia? I mean, we're all connected, right? We have similar histories. So I went back and I sought out volunteering opportunities. And I started volunteering in this suburb called Redfern uh, a week after these very famous riots that happened that were due to um, a very young, I think, 13-year-old Indigenous boy, TJ Hickey, who had been profiled by police. They were looking for somebody who had stolen a handbag. So they saw him on his bike. And they, they started to accelerate and chase him. And even though he wasn't the culprit, 
he grew up with fear of the police because that's what happens in these in these in these inner city communities and indigenous youth are used to being targeted and harassed so he accelerated on his bike to outrun the police and lost control and he died after being impaled on a fence and the whole community came around and watched him bleed out i'm sorry for the graphic description but that's life in redfern so a week later there were these massive riots and um i think it the images broadcast to australia just showed indigenous people in a really bad light like violent and i remember even now even though i was young i was only 18 I remember noticing the media bias you know like against the community but where was the outrage for what the police had done and i started working there a week later and it was really interesting time to be there and i found my community i grew up a brown girl in a very white country and so suddenly walking into this suburb with all these other brown people and they looked kind of like me and they accepted me as one of them they took me in and um in addition to indigenous australian communities there were also samoan and fijian and maori people living in this area and what i found was that there was so much community love and resilience despite the lack of access to healthcare the 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 use of drugs sadly um there was a lot of beauty, beauty also in that community um but i definitely also learned a lot about the destructive nature of urban life on people of indigenous heritage that it's not really we're not designed for this you know we are we have our our cellular dna carries especially the indigenous people of australia 60,000 plus years of memory of deep intimacy with land deep intimacy with country a, 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 an incredible um connection to the spirits of land and when you dispossess a culture and a group of people even just by a few generations from their land from their spirituality and put them in a setting an urban setting it's very sad and very dark what comes out of that because you have these people now in a spiritual existential crisis where they're they don't feel belonging anymore they don't they belong to the land so when they no longer belong to their land and when you put them in these ugly concrete buildings they their soul starts to feel crushed and it's no wonder that they turn to things like alcohol and drugs and also we have we genetically a lot of indigenous people were not built to handle alcohol we we suffer higher rates of alcoholism because that's not that's not part of our dna like we're not meant to interact with these dark substances and we've been alienated from our own medicines in many places so it it was a very beautiful but also devastating experience i think i was volunteering for that community for 3 years but definitely was something that shaped me and shaped who i shaped who i am today and made me realize like 
the struggle for Indigenous sovereignty, the struggle for land back, the struggle to have our wisdom and technologies and cosmovisions recognized as valid knowledge sources in the Western world is universal to Indigenous people all over the world. What was the catalyst, I think, for becoming, you know, essentially an activist? I mean, you've described it there in terms of like what you witnessed. And actually, that was actually my experience from when I went traveling for a year. I lived in Australia and you know, I did all those things. I was only like 18 when I went over there between my A-levels and university. And I did that terrible thing. I did climb Ayers Rock. I guess I'm just going to tell myself I didn't know any better, but there were clear signs saying, please do not climb this rock. And as you've said, you know, there was a lot of people around that just felt very unfamiliar to me. I was extremely young and I wasn't educated about Indigenous communities back, what, like 20, 20 20-something years ago. And I think... Yeah, it's very interesting when you describe it in that way because I had no awareness of that world. So I'm intrigued, you're definitely younger than me, what your experience was in terms of how this, you know, observation of this kind of, yeah, like almost exile, as you, as you kind of put it, how did that change your view on, on the world, like in terms of what you maybe felt you had to offer when you were, when you were growing up? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge the traditional name of Ayers Rock, which is Uluru, which is a very sacred place to the Indigenous people. And what a treat that you were able to experience its magic. And it's not my place to offer forgiveness for ignoring the the will of the Indigenous people of the area who do ask people not to climb their sacred rock. But I will say that you are not the only one and that I have also done similarly um, inappropriate things when I was young, just not knowing any better. Um, Tyson Yunkaporta, who has an amazing book called Sand Talk. He's an Indigenous Australian man. Um, he uh, talks about this phenomenon um, of people stealing rocks from Air- from Uluru, even though they're told you can't take any rocks home, but a lot of people just take them back with them anyway because they think it's just one little rock and they can feel that there's something sacred and magical about this huge rock so they want to take a little piece home with them and um so Taisi Yankaporta in his book describes how Uluru has now had to build a uh like a a big shed a big collection shed for all the stones and rocks that have been taken from Uluru and people have brought them back to wherever they live in the world and all of a sudden they start experiencing terrible nightmares and visions and hauntings and somehow all of them realize it's the rock I knew I shouldn't have taken it. I took it and I got to send it back. So now Uluru is un- inundated with all these rocks being returned. And Tyson talks, speaks, um, shares this story in the context of the fact that Indigenous people know that, yeah, duh, rocks are sentient, of course. <laughs> they, they, they are alive. They have spirits. So I have a funny story of a girlfriend visiting me and we were taking a little hot spring dip and uh, we went to take a photo and she she moved a rock to in order to prop up the phone. And I had just read this chapter in the book and I looked at her and I said, did you ask the rock? And she was like, what? Did you ask the rock permission to be a tripod? Did you move it? Did you ask it before he moved it? And she said, no, but I'll ask it now. And it was just 
I was being very militant about the sovereignty of rocks because um, I've definitely taken rocks from around the world for some very sacred places too. And um, yeah, now I always ask if they would like to if they would like to come with me. And a lot of the time they say, no, <laughs> we're good here. Thank you. And I've always had a connection to rocks. I've always loved them. I've always, I've always felt their sentience. And so when I read this chapter in Tyson Yankaporta's book, I was like, oh, that's my indigenous side. I have thousands and thousands of years of history of talking to rocks. Uh, that's how my ancestors built Machu Picchu. You think they were just moving the rocks? They were 100% talking to them. Do you know why they built Machu Picchu where they did? And I know I'm not answering your question, but I'm hoping these tangents are interesting. A lot of the um, Inca cities are actually built on fault lines because they were so in tune with the rocks that they understood that where the, when the earthquakes happened, they would break up the rocks for them. They wouldn't need to pound on them so hard. So cities like Machu Picchu and Ollantaytambo are on these fault lines because they were just master stonemasons and they had a spiritual relationship to the rocks. The rocks told them where to, where to go find the rocks that had been broken up already so they didn't have to do so, so much hard work. But anyway, so how was I shaped in exile? Um, look, like I said, I... I I can't escape my, my I, I can't escape my in, indigenosity. It's something that has been in my life since as long as I could remember. And I am so grateful that my mother had the had a, a love for her culture and for our indigenous history and past as well, because it could have been the other way. I could have had a mother like many. Peruvians especially who want to hide their indigenous ancestry and want to play to their more European side and my mother was never like that and when my grandmother came to live with us I heard Quechua for the first time and this was just amazing. My grandmother can recite all the 12 or 13 Inca kings um, off by heart and it's just so beautiful to hear her uh yeah just say those names of our of our incas of our leaders and and to hear about our um the em empire is not the right word but the inca territory Tawantinsuyu, and that we built more roads than the romans and my mom used to dress me up you know how your parents um take you to get your like yearly photo with Santa or like, I don't know, yearly family photo. Uh, many years in my yearly photo, I was in traditional Peruvian dress. And, uh, and I, I, at the time I was like, mom, other kids get to wear like, you know, like just normal clothes. But it was important to my mom that we understood where we came from. And so when I moved it's something that I've always been proud of and that I've always carried with me. But I think when I moved to the U.S. when I was 20, when I became an actress officially, a working actress, I I got to the USA and, you know, I started auditioning for roles and nobody cared that I was Indigenous or Quechua. They don't, Americans are especially, like, myopic when it comes to, like, cultural appreciation. And I just got given the tag of ethnic. And so I would go out for, they'd be like, oh, this role, they're, um, they're, they're looking for ethnic. So, um, yeah, you can audition for this one. It's an ethnic role. And so I'd go up to play like Asians and Arabs. And I mean, this is just, this is only 15 years ago, mind you. 
just like they didn't care. They just were like, anybody that's not white to make us look good, we don't care if we're being culturally appropriate. And so it's crazy now how how much things have changed. And also in some ways how things have changed in surprising ways. Like in a in a in a stunning reversal of that kind of racism. Um, when I did Baker and the Beauty, they initially were hesitant to cast me because they were looking for somebody very culturally different from my love interest, who was this Cuban, Cuban American. And the storyline is that these people come from two different cultures. So when I auditioned with my American accent, they were like, but these guys look the same and they talk the same. They've got the same amount of melanin. But the minute I, when I went back for the audition, the minute I did it in my Australian accent, then they saw me as a white girl. And then I got the role. And then they cast my parents as white people as well. And I thought, oh, wow, this works both ways. You know, I can be ethnic or if I dye my hair blonde, I can also be like European passing. And I am both. I'm 50-50. So I can see how that makes sense. But just to wrap this up, it wasn't until 2020, at the beginning of 2020, that um, in ceremony, I received very, very clear guidance from my ancestors. Like, okay, this is cute that people think you're a white girl. But you need to remind them who you are and where you're from. And your people need a voice. And they have voices, but nobody's listening to them. So maybe you can use yours to highlight theirs. And I just got a very clear instructions. Um, the ancestors were pretty funny. They told me to change my Instagram bio. <laughs> they said, you need to say you're an Indigenous woman on your Instagram. This is literally a message I had in a vision and I thought like how funny like that's very specific and very uh, modern of them to be (laughs) dictating my Instagram bio but the minute I put indigenous woman on there everything changed all of a sudden like people were asking me like this issue especially around the pandemic really mattered you know and it was starting to matter more and I, I, I am very careful and, and continue to be very careful to not like to, to be clear that it, I want to pass the microphone. I want to, I'm trying to highlight their voices. The only reason I, I feel called to represent myself as an indigenous woman is to highlight what's happening to their communities. Because personally in my life, I'm not suffering under any hardship or oppression. I haven't been dispossessed from my land, you know. And so this isn't really about me, but me being able to open doors and to share platforms for the Indigenous people that are being overlooked around the world and for their issues and realizing that I am a bridge between these two worlds. And so to be that bridge rather than the the focal spotlighted person. I mean, how how important do you think it is for women to have a, a voice in the indigenous community like that? As you say, I mean, obviously you've got that, you know, you've got that platform, but to share that, what does that really mean to you? I think that even indigenous cultures and communities have been infected by the virus of patriarchy. Many indigenous cultures were and continue to be matriarchal and matrilineal. For example, the Shipibo people in Peru have a matrilineal culture. 
in their tribe, um, the men make the decisions, but the women have the power of veto, which I thought was very interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's like this division of like equal, but different. I'm not saying it's something we should emulate because I'd like to make the decisions too, but I like this idea of veto power. Imagine how much we could change in the world if women could say, sorry, nope, no more drilling. It doesn't work for us or for our children. No war. We don't like it. Nope, not going to happen. So, you know, and then in other places, um, I, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that the, the Inca culture, my ancestors were a matriarchal culture all the Incas were men. And I think that patriarchy is something that we, that all cultures around the world have had to deal with and look at. I can't blame colonization for that. Although colonization definitely has made it worse. And so I think by being an indigenous woman, um, coming from the, the, I guess Australia is considered the global North. But coming from a country where women were, were considered very equal, where I am an independent woman, I don't rely on any anyone else financially. Um, I think that makes me like an anomaly in Indigenous and Latin culture and helps me. Um, yeah, it helps me advocate for more rights for women, especially Indigenous women in these societies and cultures that sometimes are still stuck in these very machista kind of patriarchal ways. My friend Nina Gualinga is an incredible activist. I encourage everybody to look her work up. She has a beautiful Instagram account. She's also been writing many pieces for different um, for different publications. And she says that in, in Ecuador, it's hard for her to get respect. And I'm like, how? She's probably one of the activists I respect the most. She's, she's fluent in English, in Swedish, in Quechua, in Spanish. Four, she speaks four languages, but in Ecuadorian culture, she's an indigenous woman. And that means she's not really worthy of being listened to with credibility. And it just made me realize like how much work there is still to do there. And how, going back to Sonia, how groundbreaking it is that so many women and men must have voted her in. So yeah, still a lot of work to do in those communities in the dismantling of patriarchy and, and machista culture. With regards to, it gets me on to something that was going through my mind actually when you were talking about all of that. And I think what I found quite interesting, I mean, I was reading that you obviously in Burning Man just recently, and I'd like to talk about that in a sec, but I would also be interested to hear your thoughts on when um, I was in Tulum, there's this like... Um, we're going to talk about land rights and, you know, access for indig indigenous communities and indigenous people. When I was there, there was this kind of like one beach, which was like by far the most beautiful beach in the whole um, of that area. And it was kind of like, you couldn't get on to that beach um, as a local person. Like if you were just kind of, you know, wanting to go for a swim, which I'm sure those people have had access to. And I remember having access to when I went there sort of 25 years ago, which is what made me want to go back until I saw it um, at the beginning of this year. And I was absolutely astounded to see that you cannot get onto this beach unless you're staying in this like five-star hotel. And I just thought... I mean, I just speak, you know, I spoke to a lot of people when I was there and I was just really, really upset and quite outraged that, you know, the local community, the indigenous people that have had access to that land their entire lives, I would have thought suddenly cannot go for a swim in their own local backyard. And I just, I would just be very interested to hear your thoughts on that. 
Oh, you've opened up a big can of worms. Okay, take a deep breath because this makes me also very livid to think about what is happening to Tulum. And Tulum is a microcosm for other very beautiful places in the world that Indigenous people inhabit that have turned into tourist hotspots um, with tourism being a legacy of colonialism and the colonial mindset and the desire to own and to push Indigenous people off their land in order so in order for foreigners to come and extract and exploit the beauty out of a place while misusing resources to then leave so that the Indigenous people can clean up after them and live in the mess that they've created and the disasters that they've created. Um, so Tulum. So let's acknowledge that we're talking about the Maya, okay? One of the greatest civilizations um, in the world. The Maya invented zero. Um, it's proven that they knew about the number zero before Arabic culture. So mathematically, we're talking about some of the most advanced peoples on the planet in terms of astronomy, um, engineering, agriculturally. So let's acknowledge the let's acknowledge the wisdom of the Maya people, past, present. Um, let's acknowledge that this land, the Yucatan Peninsula, is a very, very sacred piece of land. And it's near where, if not exactly where, the meteorite landed that wiped out the dinosaurs. So there's that's why all the cenotes are there. And it's very sacred, sacred land to the Maya people. Um, it's also very stunningly beautiful, and I understand why Westerners want to come and experience it. But they come with this mindset, and I, you know, when I'm sure when you went, and I, you're lucky to have been able to experience Tulum before real estate developers from the United States got there. But um, it, it it would have been just this magical place, open to all. Um, probably to Western eyes, ripe for development, but to Indigenous eyes, already highly developed. Uh, food forests, you know, uh, access to clean water, um, access to animals for hunting, the potential for um, cultivating land. I mean, it didn't need much except support for those, for those local communities to revive some of their traditional agricultural ways but instead greedy developers came with dollar signs in their eyes and were like this could be making so much money and they infected the local people with their greed and they infected the local leaders also with their greed and they bought off land that should never have been sold off that land should stay in mayan hands this is this is like this is like Mexicans going to Buckingham Palace and and through real estate deals, sectioning off parts for themselves to sell and to build things on. And you would say, no, that's our land. This is our this is where our kings and queens have lived for generations. That's the importance of Tulum and the Yucatan Peninsula to the Maya people. And the fact that now their only way of existing on their ancestral lands is to be uh, the underpaid cleaners and cooks and taxi drivers and basically servants making 
slave wages on their ancestral lands, refilling the margaritas of disgusting American tourists, and now prohibited from walking on their own beaches is is as disgusting as it sounds. Not to mention the environmental disaster that they've created now in Tulum with with the lack of insight into sewage and sewage systems and and water runoff and polluting polluting the water tables running out of water the plastic problem nothing is being recycled there every 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 plastic bottle that has ever been served every plastic straw in Tulum is still there and and if if i can't go there anymore because i can't support it and if people still feel okay with supporting that uh i mean i don't know how you can but i just think it just speaks to this mindset of out of sight out of mind you know well i haven't seen it and you know and now it's become like and i'll just be brutally honest so trashy it has become really trashy that it's it used to be a place at least where like i thought potentially we could appeal to all the spirituality that that claims to exist there and appeal to like the spiritual nature of people and say hey we really need to manage this better we're coming in and taking over and the maya people are not living with dignity and we need to fix this but now i have very little hope because the kind of that like people are becoming hip to the fact that they've ruined it and so they're like oh we're going to go find somewhere else to ruin now and i won't even say the names of places that i've heard people say oh we're going here now it's the new tulum and i'm like first of all go, don't go destroying somewhere else now i don't want it to be the new tulum and second of all how disgusting that you came you enjoyed you exploited you extracted and now you've moved on and now you've left it for like just now these trashy people with absolutely no consciousness that treat it like some cancun spring break place now n- now that's who we're leaving to steward this beautiful land no so i'm just livid i'm livid at the greed of of, of mexican of officials as well and like this mexican government this president wants to put in the maya train to bring more economic opportunity and employment to the yucatan peninsula and this train is going to go through like primary rainforest threaten the habitats of like the last remaining wild animals like jaguars i mean like why why in the name of economic development like i said these places are already highly developed it takes thousands and thousands of years for these forests to grow the way that they have they they're tended to orchards just like the amazon they're a product of the mesoamerican milpa system which was the maya agroforestry system like they need to be protected as as this is a cultural heritage site and if communities are poor and need employment we need to figure out other ways of paying them to keep the trees in the ground to find ways to to revive agricultural tradition so that they can be they can feed themselves from their land again to re- bioremediate all the rivers and places that have been poisoned and bring life and 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 prosperity back to the communities that way not by putting in a train that brings in more tourists that's exactly what we don't need I'm glad you got that off your chest it, it looked like you needed to <laughs> Because a lot of people here listening think about think Tulum is this great place. 
listen, I, I 100% agree with everything you said, but you said it way better than I ever could. And the point of the matter is I hadn't been there for, you know, as I said, probably 25 years. And what I witnessed in February was the antithesis of everything I went there for. I was absolutely horrified and I felt tearful on a daily basis seeing this segregation of the local community and the rich, you know, five-star hotel guests and just nothing about it felt authentic or you know especially not environmentally the way they were just chopping through the jungle and you know the paths and the roads for me to actually get to this one little snippet of sand that I was I, you know I was told was the only beach that there was so I was kind of amazed when um, one night a taxi driver and my man drove me home and we sat on the steps of my my guest house for about half an hour just talking about it and I was you know, so upset that I thought maybe I should make a podcast, but I went there to try and have a break from podcasting. I was like, no, I will not make a podcast on this topic. But I did want to ask you because I knew you'd have an opinion. Don't worry, I just said everything that you wanted to say. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was the least relaxing holiday of my life, but that's another story. Um, so, you know, moving on from that then, let's talk about Burning Man because um, actually I saw that you'd actually slammed the festival according to my least favorite newspaper on planet Earth. And I'm not even going to name which one it was. I hate it that much. I don't want to give it an ounce more opportunity to get another column inch out into, um, you know, into the ether. But, you know, what they posted a headline sort of saying that you were um, saying that they are contributing to climate collapse uh, by burning natural gas for fun, so the headline said, and I saw that you, you know, I saw your little protest clip on Instagram that you filmed there, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on Burning Man because obviously we've just been plagued by this whole Instagram monster of everybody that was at Burning Man, and even if they'd ever been to Burning Man, then started posting these pictures of the fact that they were there. So I'm kind of intrigued to hear your um, your thoughts on that. Oh my goodness, another can of worms. Well. I've been going to Burning Man for over a decade. Let me say that. So I feel like a very, I feel like a member of the Burning Man community to the point where like any community that you're a part of, you can lovingly call out the things that need to be addressed. Okay. So I didn't go there just to make some protest because that would be pointless. And I'm really trying not to, to be the person that sits on the outside of something and points in and says, bad, 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 bad. I feel like my role in, in my, mm, my role as somebody who creates culture that doesn't just um, shape it, which is a very um, intentional decision that I've made of late um, requires me to be, actively participating in culture and sometimes that means actively calling out some things so um i have had many different burning man experiences i would say over half the times that i've gone i've slept in tents and i've set up everything myself i always set up everything myself i've never paid tens of thousands of dollars to have camp set up for me which is a very disturbing trend that has been happening since Instagram um, ruined Burning Man. <laughs> and uh, I've been going since pre-Instagram and a lot of things changed when Instagram started happening and a lot of new people started coming in without any awareness of the ethos that Burning Man is built on, just seeing it as a photo opportunity and place to kind of rave and boast about on your socials, uh, about your fabulous outfits 
don't even get me started on the outfits for a place that is supposed to be about like expressing your your originality and authenticity it's amazing how quickly we we fall back into conformity even in a place that is about expressing your individuality but um I, I every year I go I or in the last few years I've said this is the last year I can't go back because every year I grow in my awareness of the environmental impact of Burning Man. Every year I grow in my understanding of the impact it has on the indigenous community, the Paiute people on whose land we're on at Black Rock Desert. And yeah, I actually took the time to read the environmental impact report after the last year that I went. And those are things that you can't get out of your head. What if you're somebody committed to, to, uh, the well-being of our planet and ecosystem when you read this this like 50 page impact report those are things that stay with you and I'm not I can't just forget it and go and pretend I didn't read it and at the same time I felt I I the I want to applaud Burning Man for at least putting becoming carbon neutral on the map uh, they said 2030, which is way too late, but at least it's in their consciousness. And this last year they gave, I think it was 10,000 tickets um, to Black and Indigenous people through their ride program, which I think is the first time they've done that. And I know um, many people that got tickets through this program that it was either their first time to Burning Man or yeah it was just very exciting to think of certain activists that I knew indigenous people being represented there because I can say one of the positives about blowing burning man blowing up on Instagram and becoming this huge thing known internationally uh, like growing out of its like local um, origins is that in the beginning I was like the only one of the only people of color and now, and this year, there was so many people of color on the playa. And that's amazing. That's really important because it was a bit of a monoculture before. So the diversity of culture is exciting. And I wanted to go. It had been two, three years since the last official one. And a lot of my friends were going. And I was interested. I saw some great programming. And I was like, you know, I, I know the environmental impact, but isn't it better to be calling for change within than sitting at home with FOMO pointing fingers and like, I don't know how much impact am I going to have doing that as opposed to if I go. Plus I heard my wonderful friends at Rave Revolution were putting up this art piece that said, we are the climate problem. And I was like, Ooh, that's provocative. And because I'm a provocative person, I was like, I'm down to take part in this because most burners need to read that. Most burners are, you know, no, I don't want to say most, but a big a big chunk of the newer people are people with enormous wealth who are flying in on their private jets to Burning Man, paying sometimes $50,000 to stay at a plug-and-play camp where poor Mexican workers are flowing in to, like, build these camps. Don't even get me started on those. And, and I'm friends with some of them, I'll, I'll admit that. And I was really excited for them to read this message because it's something like when I say it, it's like annoying. But if they see it as an art piece on the playa, they have to stop and think about it. And I thought that was a brilliant message. Now, if I was the artist, I probably would have done a sister image that said, we are the climate solution next to we are the climate problem. 
because I think it's very important to also frame humans as also the potential solution and not just the problem. But it is what it is. I had my friend Dione, who's um, uh, uh, Danae, uh, come and sing. And I posted this video on Instagram and the Daily Mail loved it. They loved it. I'm sorry, I'm going to mention who it was, but they, I guess I'm, I'm a target of them now. I think Rupert Murdoch has me on his vision board and he's got a little, I'm like, I'm kind of honored. Like, oh, it means I've kind of arrived somewhere now. If they are like looking at me as like this, this woke um, person to take down. And I hear where they're coming from to an extent, like, Oh, but she burned fuel to even go there. You know, like, trust me, I acknowledge that. And I didn't enjoy myself that much because that's all I could think about is like, is this worth it? And I'm on the fence. I can't tell you that the beautiful experiences that I had were worth the carbon, the carbon load. Like, I I don't know yet. I don't know if I'll go back again. <laughs> like, I don't know. But at least that at least that message got out there. At least, you know, around 40 people came to listen to the talk by um, some people from uh, Extinction Rebellion and this other amazing climate scientist talking about the realities that we're in. At least there were 40 people, probably more, but 40 people who showed up on the day to to take in that message when they could have been partying or you know doing all other kinds of things at Burning Man they showed up because they acknowledge like we if this conversation has to happen here because if it doesn't happen here and this is where we're supposedly changing culture and creating a counterculture what kind of counterculture are we creating without acknowledging this massive elephant in the room that this huge countercultural event which has done amazing things for psychedelics and etc has to also address that it is an enormous burden to the environment. And so there are camps looking at changing that, like Earth Guardians, who are showing people how to do it on wind and solar. And, and you know, I think our message was, we've just got to transition faster. And first step is banning that p- private airport. It, this is sounding very like a place that I'm very familiar with. And... Um... <laughs> might actually be sitting on that lump of rock underneath my chair seat right now um so I know exactly you know what you're talking about and when I read that article I mean I felt everything that I can imagine must be going through your mind when you go to a place like that because you know that's exactly the problem that Ibiza has um so I was kind of fascinated by by watching that unfold and obviously you know the juxtaposition of, of people that really, really care and are extremely conscious and aware and want to do something positive for the planet, but then, you know, want to be in that environment and connecting in those ways with those kinds of people and, you know, the wealth versus, you know, kind of like the respect for, for the place and the environment. It's it's a very, it's a tricky one. It's definitely a tricky one. And it's, you know, something we obviously talk about on this podcast a lot in terms of, you know, uh, the Spanish kind of issues that we're facing here um, on the island. I mean, you you and I had a very, very long chat on the phone not so long ago, which is exactly why we're having this conversation. And as p- people can probably tell, we're not going to run out of things to talk about any, anytime soon. <laughs> um, but we chatted about regenerative agriculture, the soil, and what Ibiza is doing and needs to do more of, really, to head 
um, to heal, sorry, our stunning red earth. And I think, you know, as director or one of the directors on the board of the 2020 Netflix film Kiss the Ground, which most people, I'm pretty sure, uh, will have watched by now. Can you can you tell us first first and foremost, what does a role as, as director on the board of that film actually entail and how did that sort of come to be um so just want to clarify that I'm, I'm a board member but I'm not a director but um I don't even know do we have a director but yes I get I guess board of directors but this is an NGO so just a humble board member doing my best to serve this wonderful organization um that uh it, it was built around the movie um that is the movie that actually opened my eyes to the existence of regenerative agriculture. So we'll forever be grateful to Kiss the Ground for being that kind of portal for me. Um, and, you know, I came on board as an Indigenous woman because I think while that movie was so brilliant in reaching a certain audience, myself included, it it, it, it did brush over the indigenous origins of regenerative agriculture. And I believe that's something that the directors are trying to, are addressing in their follow-up film, which I'm so excited to see. But just wanted to flag that, that, you know, regenerative agriculture is not some new idea. This is how indigenous people have been practicing agriculture for millennia. And it, it differs in different places. And so when I was last in Ibiza, I was tickled to see that some of the indigenous technologies in the island were very similar to what they were doing in the Amazon. For example, the clay soil um, that, uh, that Ibiza has, um, has traditionally been amended through the use of biochar, which is exactly how indigenous people in the Amazon amended the very clay soil of the Amazon in order to create the teja preta, the black earth, that is a human-made invention. That is how we know that the Amazon was, that we know today was um, co-created by humans. And so it was wonderful to see that, um, that that technology is being revived on the island. It was wonderful to hear discussions about agroforestry, you know, the importance of bringing forests back on the island and, and the importance humans have in managing these forests. And, uh, and the fact that like, especially in countries like Spain and, and with the threat of fires, unless you have humans managing forests, then it's not good. Like it, it, it doesn't bode well for these apocalyptic fires that we're seeing. And so that requires humans to move out of their concrete apartment blocks in, in towns and cities and find ways to be living in the forest as stewards of the forest you know, like learning how to use fire as a regenerative tool to safeguard against larger fires, learning about how to make biochar, amending the soil, learning about how to, you know, proper forest management involves cutting down certain trees. And so what does that look like? You know, you need to know which ones to cut down and why and then how to use them. And so it's just this, this agroforestry is part of the history of, of Ibiza. And it's so wonderful to see it being revived in certain places and just want to shout out my friends like Christian at Juntos, um, who was a lovely host and who educated me so much, and also Philip at Terra Masia, who um, is also a biochar geek and was wonderful to see what he's doing with biodynamics on that farm. And I learned a lot from my farm visit, and I'm inspired. I'm inspired. I feel like I discovered a whole new part of the island. And now the trick will be to get all the wealthy people to come on board because we need them to to 
start reforesting some of their lands. We need them to stop bringing in these silly olive trees that are that are sneaking in the snakes that are decimating the lizard populations. Like, you know, I, I kind of see myself sometimes as like a secret agent, like that the ancestors have like um, created to like infiltrate the worlds of the 1%. And, um, and, you know, I really understand where the Daily Mail article is coming from, but I really want to invite that, that journalist, because I do respect her as a journalist, to just come along with me on one of these like so-called trips and to kind of hear how annoying I am at all these, in all these conversations with these wealthy people. Like you want people like me talking to these people of enormous wealth and privilege and calling them out on it. Because if I have one superpower, it's that people have a hard time saying no to me. So when I tell them, you know, like, oh, you need to pull up this monoculture and start planting like a polycrop food forest and be, you know, and also open up your land for communal use. People are like, okay, all right, you know. And so you want me to start like, you want me to be in those spaces. And trust me, those are the only conversations I'm interested in having. No, I, you know, you're like one of those little uh, olive tree snakes that's kind of slithering into these communities and... uh... sliding in the back door just to to say your piece good for you and it's so amazing to hear that you are doing you know and having those conversations because they need to be had you know nothing changes without somebody having a voice and it's really beautiful to hear that you know the work that you are doing and and the Daily Mail I mean don't get me started I'm going to dig out the article actually and find out who that journalist is maybe I'll um, send her this audio and see if she would be I've got her name. I, I want to invite her, actually, if she's listening, please. I think she has some, like, beautiful French name. I'd love to have a conversation with you and discuss the nuances that, like, your journalistic integrity, like, deserves to include in an article on me. Because there's so many nuances that are missed when you just, like, go for that big headline. But I'd love to reach Daily Mail audiences with this message. That's why I'm here. Well, we'll give her, we'll give her a <laughs> shout-out for sure. But, but getting back to the regen story, because I think, um, you know – Obviously, Kiss the Ground came out in 2020, and that was a moment or in time just when for a you know, actually, grew enormously, as did let's just you know, take five minutes so we can Netflix. do this properly. And I think and I'll just you charge my, I'm charging at now, and I use the restroom. Is that okay? Moment in time when we're all kind of sitting there contemplating our own morality and the way we live and the way that we eat and the way you know we get and gather our food. And I think specifically in a place like this in Ibiza, where you know, there's a lot of these disgusting, great big, um, you know, multinational sort of supermarket chains here, which I find is, you know, the biggest heartbreak uh, and tragedy of this island is all the importation and the issue that, you know, we have with eating all this plastic food and, you know, everything that's coming um, is just feeding this kind of capitalistic beast, basically. Um, so it, it feels like a real problem. And I think, you know, Kiss the Ground was a, a moment in time where people kind of watched that film and perhaps suddenly reconsidered or had the time to actually think about the way that they eat and they buy um, and they, you know, the, 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 the food that they eat is produced. So I think it was, it was just unbelievably good timing, but I'm fascinated by the kind of wave of change that it's, it's actually, you know, struck in most people's minds. And I'm interested to see, you know, what, do you have any data? Do you have any feedback that you can maybe share with us of, of people's stories or kind of, you know, um, any kind of follow, I mean, you say there's a follow-up film coming, which I want to hear a little bit more about, but what, you know, what do you think the real impact of that film was at that particular um, juncture? I think the 
I think the massive impact it had on people is first of all, alerting them to like one of the biggest contributors to climate change currently is agriculture. So that's the massive problem. I think a lot of people, when they think of like what's polluting the world, they don't put agriculture at the top and it is. And uh, what's causing all this loss of biodiversity and devastation, it's modern agriculture. But then it also framed regenerative agriculture as the solution which that I think was also revolutionary for people so waking up to the problem but then brilliantly in that movie but also here's the solution and I think that's exciting I encourage people to like I was saying at the beginning of this podcast interview to really research what that means like regenerative agriculture needs to be specific like contextually specific to the place you know and I I personally and I've had a chat with my friend there's some people who disagree with me they think that we need we need more cows because there's so much degenerated land and that we need the cows to regenerate it but I'm of the mindset that in the places where they don't belong, we need to reforest those places and learn different kinds of regenerative agriculture, of which agroforestry is one of them, like in the Amazon. Like we don't need any more land deforested for more cows. In fact, we need to have less cows and be reforesting the parts that have been actively deforested. In Australia too, you know, like I, I, I'd really like to see zones created that are cow free so that traditional roots and grasses can flourish that the ruminant animals destroyed when the English brought them there. There are some places where cows just don't belong and many places in the world where cows already exist. And so we need to deal with it and need to use them in a regenerative way, but it's a tricky one. It's a very sticky one that brings up a lot of, a lot of emotion for people. Um, the cow thing. Um, I was just at a food conference in Italy and there was like the vegan contingent and the regen agriculture contingent. And I mean, both are aiming for uh, a just and, and fair and um, ethical food system. But it was interesting that they both were coming from these different angles. You mentioned um, that, you know, there is a follow-up to Kiss the Ground. So let's just, I would love to just hear a little tidbit on that before we have to go, because we've been chatting for a very long time indeed. So um, from what I have heard, they are taking time to interview subjects like my dear friend Lila June Johnston, who is a Diné activist, poet, uh, she just did her PhD in indigenous food systems. And that to me is so exciting because it's opening up, it's opening us up from this myopic worldview and, and false narrative that regenerative agriculture is some new invention, uh, and solution to this problem. But actually, what the first film didn't do was acknowledge the source of the problem, that colonialism is was the beginning of all our environmental problems on this continent and that indigenous people have been through trial and error um, managing food systems on this continent, some of which have lasted 5,000 years. Now, modern food systems collapse between three to 400 years, but the Milpa forest system of Mexico has been in use five thousand years continual use i mean it is just so short-sighted and arrogant to not value these agricultural systems 
when they have much more longevity than ours. Some of the aquaculture systems in, in, in Australia uh, created by the indigenous people there are tens of thousands of years old. And these are systems that are deeply intuitive, born out of a deep intimacy and understanding of the natural world, deep observation. And in my mind, they are not just valid technologies, but absolutely crucial to our survival on this planet. Um, it, is, it is crucial that we learn these ways because we, we have to admit that in the last 500 years since we've gone around the world colonizing, um, we have been importing uh, values and, and technologies and food systems and, and especially around agriculture that have been really destructive and not taken into account um, context and place and have resulted in the enormous loss of biodiversity. So we have to put our hands up and say, oh my God, we did it wrong. We were a little bit arrogant there. How can we, how can we reverse course on this? And the first step is acknowledging that we did it wrong and, and apologizing to Indigenous people for not listening to them. And now we must do everything we can to learn from them. And so that's what I hope that the second film will do. But if not, there's, there are wonderful books and resources like um, Braiding Sweetgrass that I encourage everybody to read and Lila, Lila June's book, which is called The Architects of Abundance which will hopefully be out soon. So um, until then, yes, please look into resources that share around Indigenous wisdom and Indigenous food systems because they are more than worth, worthwhile to look into. Natalie, thank you so, so much for joining us here. It's been an absolute joy to listen to your infinite wisdom um, and amazing, you know, perspective on all of this. So I really, really appreciate your time and, um, yeah, wishing you... Lots of love and luck with your next project. It's been an honor to be featured on, like I said, one of my favorite podcasts. So thank you for having me, Joe. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much. Coming to you every day.